This morning we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter uh, 2, so if you want to go ahead and turn in your scriptures uh, to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 13, we'll read through verse 23. As been alluded to earlier, we are in the middle of our Advent uh, calendar time as, as a church, and uh, we've been looking at the various witnesses to Advent that we've seen, or to the arrival of Christ. We looked at the shepherds. Uh, we looked at the, the wise men or the magi last week, and this morning we're going to look at a, a different witness uh, that's going to um, tell us some truths about Christ and take us to uh, a deeper, maybe richer understanding of, of Advent and Christmas and the nature of Christ in our lives. Uh, to set things up, uh, you know, you have elections that come about, particularly the presidential uh, elections, and if you pay attention... Uh, more often than not, there's a phrase that you're going to hear uh, throughout uh, that cycle. At least somebody's going to say it. And the phrase is loose cannon. That they're going to say their opponent is some kind of loose cannon. That they are, and what they're trying to communicate is they're, they're out of control, uh, they're destructive, they're dangerous, uh, they, can, uh, they can do some serious damage. And that phrase, loose cannon, it's, it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor that comes from the time when ships were chipped, you might say, before they had uh, the guns that we have on, on ships right now, the Columbus Day kind of ships is what I think about it. They had these cannons that were on wheels, and they were set in different places on the ship, and they were secured uh, by a rope, because if you didn't, you've got the recoil on those cannons uh, that would move that thing around. And then you've got to, to be able to have these cannons be mobile because you want to move them in different places on the ship depending on where it needs to be fired from. And so when those cannons are loose, the ropes are cut, something has happened, some kind of mishap, and those cannons are rolling around because it's choppy water and they're in the middle of a battle, you can imagine what kind of damage that uh, something like that it weighs so much uh, can do either to, to sailors or to the ship itself, and so hence you have the phrase, loose cannon, somebody that's going to do a lot of damage. And as I look this word up, uh, you know, authors would use this word here and there like big book authors, kind of authors. It wasn't really that much of a, a mainstream word, so to speak. Um, but maybe Teddy Roosevelt made it uh, more mainstream. Uh, Roosevelt, who was 51, he was retiring, you might say, from the presidency, moving out, moving out of office. And uh, if you've read anything about Roosevelt, he's got a ton of energy, uh, likes to be very active, and he's kind of lamenting, you know, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm done with the presidency, what, what am I going to do with my life now? And he was talking to one of his journalist friends, and he was, uh, said to him this, he says, I don't want to be an old cannon loose on the deck in a storm. Using that phrase, loose cannon, doesn't want to be dangerous, doesn't want to, to cause undue damage. As we read this story that we're about to look at here in Matthew chapter uh, 2 here, the reason I'm bringing this, this kind of word history lesson up is we're going to meet somebody, we're going to read about somebody who you might describe as a loose cannon, who's uncontrollable, he's dangerous, uh, capable of, of pulling off a lot of destruction. And so as you're able, let's stand together. For the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Let's hear God's word together. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old or under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, this uh, story um, is familiar to us. The story of Christ and his coming is a familiar story and a familiar event, but yet we ask that you would help us to dig a little bit deeper and see what it means for us today, this day, in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? It would be uh, pretty normal to um, hear this passage and hear it being read and think, gosh, that's kind of, it's kind of dark what's going on there, uh, especially when you compare it to the other passages that we've looked at. There's, you know, there's been worship, there's been joy, there's been excitement, it's been, you know, there's been light, there's been the giving of these gifts, and now we see something completely different. We see a complete uh, different response or a different witness to what uh, Christ's arrival is doing. And reason for that is because of the chief character in this story. It's, it's Herod. And Herod is not a good guy. Uh, he's been appointed to rule by the, the Roman uh, powers that be in this area and in this uh, country. And he's not a nice guy. He's a, he's a violent guy. You would be very uh, concerned to have him as your president, to have him as your leader. Uh, if you are... Uh, a Democrat, you know, Trump looks really good compared to this guy. Uh, if you're a Republican, Obama looks awesome compared to this guy. I mean, this is just not good news, and we'll get a little bit more so what he does. But he, the, the, the background to this story is what we looked at last week. It, the wise men coming to town, and they're on the look for this king that's been born. They've seen this star go up into the sky. They follow the star, and it's led them to uh, Jerusalem. And they begin to make inquiries, you know, where is this king that's been born? And Herod hears this, and his radar goes off. His red flags are just going off in his heart big time. And he doesn't want this competition. He doesn't want to hear about this other uh, king that's coming to interfere with what he is doing. 
And he kind of turns them into, uh, tries to do it unknowingly, into these informants. He says, you know, he, when you go find that place, when you go and find him, you know, come on back to me. It, it, tell me where you found this, this, this baby so I too can come and worship him. Uh, well, fortunately, the, the Magi are, are warned about this in the dream, and they just, they just go home. And uh, Herod is left in the dark about this. And this brings us to this passage. And in a nutshell, what it's about, it's about Mary and Joseph and the baby going to Egypt, fleeing to Egypt, and then them returning. And the question I want us to ask as we think about this passage, well, what does this passage teach us about Advent? What does this passage teach us about the nature of Christ? What does it teach us about the nature of, of Christianity and what it means to be a follower it, clearly, there's three phases, or three sections, if you will, in this passage. There's their escape, there's Herod's uh, mission, what he does in executing these children, and then there's the return, and that's our outline. The escape, Herod's mission, and then the return. So first, think about uh, the escape. Uh, in verses uh, 13 through 15, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. He tells him, you've got to leave town, you've got to go to Egypt, uh, and he even tells him why. It doesn't tell him in a vacuum, but he says, you know, Herod wants to kill the child. And so he urges him and tells him to go to Egypt, and they go immediately. Uh, Egypt is not an unusual place to go and to, to flee to. Uh, commentators will talk about, you know, at this time, there's, it's not unusual for Jews to be in this area, uh, to find refuge there, because they're on the run from whatever reasons go on their personal lives or they're on the run from Herod and what's happening in that, in that country. And so they just land in Egypt. There's probably like maybe a, a million or so Jewish people living there. And so you can imagine what that would be like for, for Joseph and his family. They, you know, it's not like they're complete aliens and strangers in this land, but they've got people that they can network with and, and be around and, and not be these complete exiles there. But here's the thing about this passage how is it that Mary and Joseph and the baby have gotten to Egypt? How did all this start? You go back to the passage we reviewed just a moment ago. God decides to send up a star into the sky. The Magi see this star and they begin to follow it. And they go to Jerusalem and they ask about this king. And Herod gets upset about that, that news and decides that he wants to do something destructive. And hence the angel coming to, to Mary and Joseph and, and telling them to flee. Now, if you're Mary and Joseph uh, at this uh, time here, imagine uh, Joseph sitting with Mary around the, the, their dining room table, so to speak, one night. And they're reflecting upon things. They're in Egypt. And Joseph says, you know what, Mary, this, having this baby Jesus, it's, it's been incredible. You know, we've experienced so much. We've had these shepherds come. We had these... These wise men come, and they've, they've given us these great gifts, and we've had this incredible worship and all these great things that have happened in our life because of this baby. It's been a great blessing having Jesus there. And then Joseph says, you know what? But at the same time, Jesus has brought us some real problems. It's because of this baby that we're on the run. It's because of this child that we're hiding here in Egypt uh, so he's not killed. And, and you get the connection here. You get the, the principle that's, that's laid out for us with that conversation. When Christ comes into your life, it solves a lot of problems. It's, it's a rich and deep blessing, that forgiveness, joy, um, being connected to your heavenly Father, all these kind of rich blessings. It solves all kinds of problems. But at the same time, 
It introduces and brings in difficulties. It brings struggle. It brings other problems into our life because of him. And part of the reason for that is it's just Jesus in your life. Jesus is a very uh, controversial figure. Uh, People are either uh, moving towards him or they're moving away from him. And we'll talk about more of that in a moment. But having Jesus in your life means, too, that certainly it's exciting to have him there, but there's always this resistance that we struggle with in our hearts. And he brings problems. He brings struggle and strife into our lives. He brings tension because sometimes he asks us to do things that we don't want to do. He asks us to believe things and trust him in ways that we just don't want to trust him. We find uncomfortable and and really difficult to pull off. Uh, Think about it maybe like this. Imagine... You're in a, a, a service, and a, a child is being baptized. And the family's up front with the little baby, and the pastor's up here. He's saying his thing about baptism and the sacrament of baptism. And uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of that, somebody stands up uh, in the middle of the congregation, and he says, you know what? This child is going to cause a lot of difficulty. He's going to bring a lot of stress. Uh, he's going to be great for some people, but he's going to be bad news for other people. And this is what basically happened to Mary and Joseph when they bring Jesus to the temple uh, to be dedicated there. Uh, Luke tells us this, and Simeon's the one that says this to them. Imagine the parents hearing this. He says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is Simeon preparing Mary and Joseph and saying, it's incredible that you have Jesus, but there's going to be difficulty with having him in your life. He's going to raise some people up, and he's going to bring some people down. He's going to bring grace and salvation into some people. That's how they're going to respond and and know him. Other people are going to know uh, him judging. They're going to know the the other side of him. In other words, to to believe in him means one thing. You're, You're moving towards him in belief. And acceptance, or you're moving away from him in unbelief and doubt and skepticism. And, and we can do this as believers ourselves. Certainly, we, we believe in him, we say we believe in him, but there's moments in our lives when we're moving away from him because, Jesus, I don't know if I can trust you with that. I don't know if I can do that in my life and trust you like that. There's a, a book I'm reading through slowly. It's called uh, Holiness. And in one chapter, the author has a chapter titled uh, The Fight. And I think it kind of captures a little bit what, what we're talking about here, this, this tension here. He says this. He says, There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences. But it's not good money. It's not the real thing. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live, but, they never see, but you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable, but it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which produces real holiness. True Christianity is a fight. And then he concludes his point like this. He says, a Christian may be known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. And what he's describing there is that the Christian life sometimes is 
difficult. Sometimes it, it, there's strife that's involved. It's not always peace and joy and, and blessing. Certainly it, it has those things, but sometimes Christianity, having Christ in your life means fight. It means wrestling. I've heard it expressed like this and compared like this. When you become a, a Christian, that things, there may be things in your life that used to bother you, but now they don't bother you anymore. They don't bother you anymore because you, you have a, a peace about them. Usually it relates to sin in our life, stuff that we, that we feel guilt and shame over uh, that doesn't bother us anymore. Uh, mostly because you've got passages like this in, in Paul, in the book of Romans, where, where Paul says there's no longer any condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, pointing to forgiveness and grace and the change of status that we have in him. But that's, at the same time, there, there are times in our lives where the things that used to not bother us, bother us now. And this is where the, the difficulty, the strife comes in the Christian life. That there are things that, you, that weren't, when, before you became a Christian, uh, they didn't bother you at all, it wasn't a big deal, but now that you are a Christian, those things really bug you. Uh, gossip. It didn't bugger me before when I was a Christian, but now that I am, it really does drive me crazy. Uh, anger. I never noticed anger in my life, but now that you're a believer, you really see it. Uh, what you, uh, being conscious of what you watch and what you don't watch, that's, that's a big deal for you now, whereas before you didn't care what you watched. You didn't care how you expressed yourself. In other words, there's things about you now you didn't notice before, but now you see those things as in a different way. And that's the difficulty. That's the, the problems that sometimes Christ brings into our lives, and we see that with Mary and Joseph. Christ is in their life. It's a rich blessing. They're excited about what's gonna, what God is going to do in their lives. But at the same time, having Christ in their life has brought real difficulty. It's left them on the run, living as, as refugees. Let's escape Mary and Joseph. Let's think about Herod's mission and what we learn uh, from that. Herod's mission is a, is a search and destroy mission. You remember in last week's passage, one of the Magi coming to town, and they say to, uh, to the town there, we're looking for a king. And when King Herod heard about this, it says in verse 3, this was, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Of course, it, Herod knows nothing about uh, the, the angel intervening and coming to uh, Mary and Joseph and getting them to, uh, to, to flee and, and run into Egypt. And we realize he's been tricked by the Magi that they're not coming back. Uh, he decides he's got to take things in his own hands and he goes to plan B. And that's when you get to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Commentators will say, probably at this time in the, in the city of Bethlehem, that you're talking maybe 15, 20 boys uh, in this age bracket that are, are killed, that are destroyed, that lose their lives. And again, he does this because Herod is not a good guy. And if you lived at this time, that certainly you're shocked by this, uh, but you're not surprised. Because you know who Herod is. You know some of his characteristics and what he's capable of. Historians will say that Herod, he was a great administrator. That was, he was strong in that suit. He had to deal with the Jews and manage them on a political uh, level, so to speak. And he used his administrative skills to build this great temple and to please, appease all these, these Jews. But that's not really how he's remembered. He's remembered for his cruelty. 
Uh, for example, he's been, he was married 10 times, or he had 10 wives, excuse me. He killed two of his wives. Uh, one of them, he would say, was his favorite. Uh, he, of course, he had numerous children, but he killed three of those boys because they were somehow a threat to him and his um, leadership or his authority uh, in what he was doing. Ten months uh, before uh, he was uh, to, to die, in his last ten months, he issued this uh, command or edict, so to speak. He got his, uh, some of his uh, men and he commanded them and said, when I die, I want you to go and kill these uh, select uh, individuals. They're people of, 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 of influence and who had been known. I want you to kill them because I really need to be mourned well by this country and by these people. Thankfully, they never carried out that order. But it gives you a, a picture of, of the man we're dealing with that would carry out such a thing in this city. So you, uh, go back a little bit and think, that's Herod. But why is it that Herod is so out of control? Why is he responding like this to these individuals? And what does that teach us as individuals this morning? Again, the Magi have shown up in the town. They're saying, we're looking for this king that's been born to the Jews. Now think about it like this. What don't they say? What don't they, uh, what, how do they not describe their, the, the mission that they're in town for, these Magi? It's not like the wise men of the Magi come into town. He said, you know what? We're looking for a savior. We're looking for somebody that's going to solve our problems, that's going to forgive us of our sins, that's going to be a great blessing to us. That's not what they say. If they said that, how many people would be on board? It's like, I'm on board. Sign me up. Let's go and find him. We want to look for that individual. That's not how they describe their mission. They go into town and say, we are here to find this king that's been born of the Jews. Where's the king? And this is why Herod is so stirred up. This is a threat to his authority. It's a threat to uh, his command. It's a threat to who he is and in his kingdom. It's a rival threat. And so here's why this is such a big deal. And this is why it's maybe important for us to see. When Jesus comes into your life, or to have Jesus around, it's an either-or situation. In, in many ways, it's a very black or white. Either you are moving towards him in faith and submission, because he's Lord, or you're moving away from him in rebellion and unbelief. Jesus is claiming to be king. That, that's why there's that uh, distinction there, so to speak. Certainly, he claims to be a savior. He claims to, to give you grace and peace and all these, these great blessings and comfort. But at the same time, he comes to be king as well. He comes to be Lord. And when you get close to his teachings, when you get close to some of the things he's, he's claiming, you, you pick this up. You can't help but see it. For example, he says, if you want to be my disciples, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He says, unless you have hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. He says it's better to lose your right hand in order to keep you from sin than to lose Jesus. He says in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why is it that he can say these things? Because he comes as king. He comes as Lord into our lives. Certainly he comes as Savior somebody who redeems us, but he also comes as king. And I think one of the lessons we can pull for Herod and his mission and how he was responding to him does not want him to be king. He does not want him to be Lord in his life. As we think about Christ in our lives, certainly he comes as Savior, but he also comes as Lord into our lives. 
The last thing uh, is, is the return. Uh, Herod uh, dies, and the angels come to Joseph, and they say, coast is clear. You're good to go. Go on back to uh, Israel. And what's interesting is that they, they go back to Israel, and Mary and Joseph, they're from Galilee. But where do they go first? They go towards uh, more into Israel, more into Judea. But they get blocked from that in a sense because Herod's son is now on the throne and they're uncomfortable with that. And the angel says, you know what, don't go there, go to Galilee. And they settle in Nazareth. Now the thing to know about Galilee and the thing to know about Nazareth is this is not um, the, the top ten most glamorous small towns to live in, so to speak. This is a know-nothing town. This is not a place that you want to be from. It's a place of little status and little little recognition. Uh, there's a, uh, this is captured a little bit in John chapter 1. In, in that passage, uh, somebody is relating to an individual named Nathaniel, and they say, Nathaniel, Jesus, or the Messiah, is around. He's here, and, he, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel famously responds, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Which is to say that Nazareth is this place that there's nothing really to write home about from this place. Nobody has significant significance comes from there. And the point I want to make for us, and maybe the principle we can have is this. Why does Matthew include this episode? Matthew's got all kinds of material. He's got all kinds of episodes, all kinds of stories he could tell about Jesus. And yet he includes this incident, this episode. What is he wanting to communicate to us? Why is it so significant for us? In his book, Hidden Christmas, the author makes the point that God does not act like the world expects. God does not act like the world expects. And this passage, I think, draws that out for us. Where does Jesus, or excuse me, where does God choose to send his message of salvation out from? What country does he choose to use? He doesn't use Egypt. He doesn't use Assyria. He doesn't use Babylon, he doesn't use Rome, all these great powerful countries and peoples. But he says, you know what, I'm going to work through Israel, this small country, this small nation. They've, they've always struggled to have power and to retain status, but I'm going to use them. Think about Jesus and think about the end of his life. How does, he, um, how does it end for him? Does it end on the throne? Does it end with Christ victorious and defeating it? all of his enemies and destroying them, it ends on a cross. It ends in weakness. It ends in suffering. God often works in ways that we just don't expect. We expect power. We expect status. We expect Jesus. If you're going to make a big splash, you're going to make, do something special in this community, in this world, surely you should come from the right place, not from a backwards place like Nazareth, where nothing good comes from. And the takeaway for us is, and I'm, I'm going to close with this thought, and why this is a big deal, is the comfort that this offers us as we think about Advent, as we think about Christmas. It doesn't matter who you are. God's not concerned about your background. He's not concerned about your history. He's not concerned about the stuff you've done or haven't done. Uh, if there are things in your life that if, if your friends found out, even your close friends, you would be scandalized. You would be uh, ashamed to the, to the core. And God knows all those things, and he says, come to me. 
because I work in unexpected ways. I work in unexpected uh, ways in people's lives that we would not expect. And he says, if you come to him with faith, if you come to him with repentance, if you come to him trusting in him, that he delights to do that. He wants to do that. He works in unexpected ways and he works in the lives of people that we would not expect. We're always looking for, surely God's going to work in this person's life because I could totally see them coming to church. I could totally see them believing this. I could totally see this conversation happening and this working in their lives. And then we hear these stories of how God miraculously works in individuals we never would have guessed would have believed the gospel, would have trusted him, would, would ever come to church, or ever turn their lives around. God works in unexpected ways with unexpected people. Will you, close, will you pray with me as we close? Father God, we are people that need the unexpected. It's the beauty of Christmas. It's the beauty of Advent that you would come that you would come as our Savior, that you would come as our Redeemer, that you would come as our Lord, you would come as a King. Who would have ever thought, who would ever put such a story together, but it's reality. It's what you have done. You have entered into our history, into our world, and you've revealed yourself to us. We pray that you would work in us, that you would drive deeper this message of life, of Christ, of advent, of arrival, of, of you dealing with the things that we struggle with, of the difficulty that comes into our lives, we pray that you would work in such a way that brings you glory and honor. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.